This is CHUO 89.1 FM. Welcome to this week's episode of The Mosaic, your weekly show highlighting the voices of the community. Here, we guide you through today's social issues, introduce you to changemakers, and keep in touch with the arts, music, and events of the city. You can expect extensive research, in-depth analysis, and discussion. From CHUO's news team, this is The Mosaic. Today, we look ahead to an annual conference in the capital for Filipino youth to celebrate their past and explore their futures together. Then we bring you a closer look at Lansdowne and walk you through its early days. Finally, we have another segment from James Brennan analyzing today's media landscape. Stick around, I'm Lauren Rolston and we've got all that and more coming up on The Mosaic. Pinoy's on Parliament, or POP, is a conference for Filipino youth. It began six years ago at Uwadawa when members in the Filipino Students Association reflected on the under-representation of Filipino Canadians in the government. Over the years, the event has grown to offer support, mentorship, and networking opportunities. It'll start on Friday with an opening gala, then run workshops through the weekend. I spoke with Pinoas on Parliament organizers ahead of the conference. As you'll hear, this event offers much more. Today in the studio, I have with me Carla Atanasio. She's been a chairperson with Pinoy's on Parliament since its inception. We also have Lisa Landicho, who is the director of finance. It's actually her first Pinoy on Parliament. Um, Carla, can you tell me a little bit about what Pinoy's on Parliament is? Definitely. Well, thanks again, Lauren, for having us here in the studio. Pinoy's on Parliament is a three-day conference that's run by members of this nonprofit called Kabanka. And what we are is we're a group of Filipino-Canadian youth really looking to solidify, you know, Filipino representation in all levels, in all industries, not just government. The name is a bit of a misnomer. Uh, It makes you think that we're only interested in politics. But since, you know, our inception in 2019, we've actually expanded to include different sectors like the arts, business, STEM, and so many more. This weekend, uh, from the 23rd to the 25th, we are going to do a lot of workshops, including speaker panels as well in different topics. And all of that is possible through the work of our volunteers, but also our funders and sponsors that have been helping us to make this thing possible. Mm-hmm, right. A huge networking opportunity, which, if I'm not mistaken, is kind of how you guys <laughs> met. Uh, yes. Lisa, do you want to talk a little bit about what this means to you? What's going on this weekend? How it's been so far? Yes. So going into this, I was kind of like in the blind. Like I didn't know what I was getting myself into. Like I obviously knew a little bit about what they do and what it is. But I had no idea with the whole planning and stuff. Like, I was just, yeah, I had no idea. So coming into this, I've met, like, so many people. That's honestly been one of my favorite parts because I was, like, I feel like growing up here in Canada, I kind of felt like I lost a part of my identity as a Filipino-Canadian. So when I joined this, my intent was to surround myself more what it is and find my identity as a Filipino-Canadian. So it's definitely nice. And then I, my favorite part about it is being able to meet other people from all around Canada. So that's been very exciting. Yeah, totally. And, and you know, Carla, you touched on it a little bit about the Filipino community in um, Manitoba, right? So how has this experience been like connecting with 
Filipino Canadians on a scale like this? Yeah, yeah, excellent question. I mean, Filipinos in Canada compose almost 3% of the Canadian population. And a lot of us migrated, I think, in the early 60s to 70s. And then in recent times, there's a caregiver and temporary foreign worker program that has brought on a lot of Filipino migrants in here. Um, But Lisa and I are from Manitoba, and our context there is very different because the Filipino community there came as early as the 50s. And we have really established this rooted community um, where everybody kind of knows each yeah. other. And it's it's interesting to come to Ottawa and, and meet Filipino Canadians from like Goose Bay in Newfoundland to Vancouver in British Columbia and hear about their experiences growing up as Filipino Canadians. Because for Lisa and I, Personally, I never felt like I was a minority, especially living in Winnipeg's North End. Everybody looked like me, spoke like me. Um, You know, their parents were friends with my parents. But there was still, you know, this kind of disconnect between immigrants and Canadian-born Filipino youth. So I think for me, that was the biggest tension. But for people that are outside of Manitoba that maybe migrated here because their parents were caregivers and then they asked them to come here, their challenges are a lot more difficult. Because now they're living with, yes, you know, their mom or their dad, but they don't know them. And so they have to face this entire layer of, A, figuring out what this Filipino-Canadian even mean, but also how do I figure out my dynamics with my parents and also try to find a community. And what Pinoy's on Parliament does is try to give those people, not the answer, but some advice as to how they can get started on that journey. Mm-hmm. And I think I remember reading that Pinoy's on Parliament began because, like, a group of people looked around and realized that representation wasn't there. So what does this group and its representation, in your words, kind of bring to, like, bridging those tensions? Yeah, I mean, you, Ottawa, and Pinoy's on Parliament have a really great relationship uh, because in 2019, you know, a group of University of Ottawa students thought, there's a significant Filipino population here. We have to get them together. And then they were like, wait, but we're Filipinos, so it has to be fun. It has to be some kind of party. That's also meaningful. Uh, for Pinoy's on Parliament, it's what we're trying to provide here is a very expandable way of defining what being Filipino-Canadian is. I've kind of talked about it a little bit, but when you're in the diaspora, There's no straight answer as to how you're going to define yourself. And with Pinoy's in Parliament, we try to bring people from all walks of life. Like, for example, this year, we have a panel on arts. So we have a Filipino playwright, you know, a Filipino artist who's really hit a very good reputation within like the cyberspace NFT kind of business. Somebody in, you know, pastries like these are unconventional tasks or jobs that Filipinos, you know, are not expected to be in. So the point that I guess we're trying to make here is that you can be the type of Filipino that you want. And there's no wrong way of being that. Mm -hmm. It's not a monolithic culture. Everyone is unique. So it's if you identify with this art form, it seems to be that that's the message, right? Exactly. And I don't know if you know this, but the Philippines is actually composed of about 7,000 islands. So even back home, like there really is no one definition of Filipino, but because we live in a society that likes to define and label things, sometimes it's just easier to sort that. But there's something very freeing about realizing that like, actually, you could just do whatever you want. Mm -hmm. (laughs) 
7,000 yeah. islands, yeah. everybody's going to be doing something different, right? Yeah. Like, it's definitely, like, inspiring, like, seeing other people in different areas when it comes to, like, different professions. So, yeah, that was, like, one of the things that I really loved about POP and, like, the people I've met. That We all come from different types of profession. Like, I'm still in school, so, like, they're, everyone's, like, taking different things. So it's definitely inspiring. Yeah, just work hard and you'll get, like, what you want as long as you put your mind into it. Yeah, so, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And you guys have a pretty decent lineup to represent that message, too. I, I think it's your day one starts on Friday. You guys have a lot of people who are going to be joining for that. Do you want to talk a little bit about what that's going to look like? Yeah. So on Friday, we have the Sir John A. McDonald Building. Uh, and we've been graciously sponsored by the Philippine Embassy of Canada and also our partners in the Canadian government, like Senator Osler, who's the first Filipina-Canadian senator. And, you know, without these already existing opportunities, like we wouldn't be able to get to where we are now. So the event on Friday, it's a community gala. We're expecting about 300 people. It's composed of dignitaries like MPs, you know, people from the media like yourselves, uh, and also community members that are flying in from different parts of Canada. And this is really the time where we get to get together, take lots of pictures, but also celebrate the accomplishments that our organizations and our volunteers, you know, have put together in the last six years. Six years is a long time. And I've been doing Pinoy's on Parliament for that long. And to see it grow to this scale, we started with about 100 delegates. And now we've tripled that number. It's really amazing. There's an appetite for this kind of conversation because people are hungry for, you know, not only social connection, especially after COVID, but also to expand their lives further. Mm -hmm. And um, Carla, what are your expectations for this weekend? Because this is your first time. You have yeah. the opening gala on Friday, which sounds like it's going to be so much fun. Yeah. But then you also have like all these workshops, right? So yes. tell me about what you're looking at going into this weekend. Honestly, I feel like it's going to be hectic. Like hearing from their stories from the previous year, it's going to be like really fun. And I think coming into this, I, was, I told myself to just have fun and enjoy everything that's going on. Because, yeah, it's going to be a busy weekend. It's going to be a busy yeah. weekend. And actually, I'd like to take this opportunity to kind of talk about our workshops because, you know, sometimes you go to conferences and they're often, you know, if you go to a business conference, obviously everything will be about business. But with Pinoy's on Parliament, we really have this diverse range of topics that people can choose from. So our topics span from how do you deal with dignitaries? How do you act? What's the <laughs> etiquette to fashion and traditional kind of food practices in the Philippines and an acting workshop and among many others uh, this weekend there's going to be 12 and all of them will be hosted and facilitated by folks from different parts of Canada one of my favorite ones is what's the chismis or what's the yeah. I guess what's the story I don't know how you would translate chismis in in English but it's basically like what's the gossip basically and it's uh what they do is they try to transform you know this kind of honestly toxic behavior of gossiping and how do we transform that into a more healthy way of communication mm. so there's that and then obviously because of our long-standing relationship with the philippine embassy they're going to be talking about you know what's what's going on back home and how can you use skills that are applicable wherever you go 
Wow. Okay. I love that. I'm excited to hear how that workshop goes. Um, another thing is that you guys also have a theme every year, right? So do you want to talk about the theme for this year? The theme this year is laro or play in Tagalog. Um, we were actually debating about this in the beginning of the year because I was like, oh, what if we do like journey? Because, you know, we could we could do little designs of jeepneys. That's a staple in the Filipino community. But we thought that with current political and social climate that we're living in, we need to look within ourselves and look back at, you know, our inner child. What was the thing that we needed so much when we were growing up? Because, you know, if you read the theme, it says there for a lot of us, especially children of immigrants, we were forced to grow up a lot faster than other kids. Like, yes. you know, one of our friends uh, was like, I was my parents' paralegal. They were making me read legal documents yeah. at nine years old. I don't know, Lisa, if you had experiences yeah. like that. Well, I personally didn't because I have older siblings. So it was mainly my older <laughs> siblings that did it. But then now that they're gone, I've, I'm like the next person in line. Yeah, yeah so your time has come. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So there's, there's moments when you were younger where you're like, you're supposed to be playing with other kids, but... You know, your parents would tell you that, like, maybe you can't afford to do those things or maybe we just don't have the resources because, you know, we're, we're kind of starting from scratch. We're building our lives here. Yeah, yeah, I kind of agree with that because, like, personally, like with me, like I had to cook dinner for my family because my parents were working. So it's definitely like you grow a lot faster. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. And also just talking about generational trauma right and how yeah. to unpack all of the trauma that comes from migrating like I came here when I was 13 so I, I was basically uprooted from everything that I knew like all my relatives all my family the friends that I have built you know my whole life and then I had to move to this like cold foreign <laughs> like honestly not as advertised place because yeah, <laughs> Winnipeg so yeah Winnipeg on TV Canada's like this wonderland, everything's green and clean. Gray. It, yeah, <laughs> it was not that. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Okay. So there's a huge sense of unity, too, to bringing this event together for everybody who's sharing these experiences, for the people who can relate. Um, that sense of healing your inner child, it also goes along with what you said with those workshops, like healing the sense of like gossip, storytelling. Like There's a lot to unpack here that isn't just, like you said, noise on parliament sounds like we're talking about something political you're unpacking a whole lot here right so i guess i'm gonna boil it down to a kind of hard question what are you most looking forward to taking away from this event this year let's think on that i think this year it's our biggest year yet and i i'm most looking forward to the partnerships that we've built um this year is huge because you know we've solidified our partnership with the philippine embassy like for real and then the golden balangay awards uh which is an awards body composed by filipino community members that give out accolades for other filipinos that are doing really well in their community and then there's the filipino canadian students association and what they do is they advocate for you know the rights of post-secondary students international students So it really feels like an Avengers kind of situation here where all of us are on the same page. We're saying that we want to uplift Filipinos that are are very respected in their industries, but we also want uh, the Filipino youth that are coming after them to be comfortable enough in themselves to pursue whatever they want. And I think 
for a lot of people that we've invited as speakers, all of them say the same thing after you know they speak at the panel. They always say, "I wish I had this when I was younger," because there's there's so much societal expectations, there's so much cultural pressure, you know, to be a certain way when you're actually just as perfect the way that you are. And I'm I'm really excited because some parents also are are coming this year, so it'll be interesting to see what their reaction would be about the range of topics that we will be talking about. But I'm hoping that this will translate into a larger social movement of a Filipino-Canadian youth reclaiming their Filipino identity. As Director of Finance, I've learned a lot, especially the career that I'm planning on doing, which is accounting. And I feel like just the skills that I've learned overall throughout this whole journey, I look forward to being able to utilize those skills in the outside world, like in the Mm -hmm. real world. Mm -hmm. Because, yeah, I think that's like what I look forward to the most. Yeah. I do have one final question that I wanted to ask, actually, for both of you, pretty much, because uh, this is the sixth year. You've been here since, like, like you're a veteran at this point, <laughs> and you're pretty new. Yeah. So I kind of want to hear both of your takes coming from those different stances, where you hope Pinoyism Parliament will go from here, maybe within the next six years. All right. So on the way here, so we walked from Elgin uh, to, to you, Ottawa, and I saw um, the Shaw Center, and I was like, Hopefully, in the next five years, we'd be able to pack in, not not a thousand, but like a couple more hundred Filipino-Canadians. And hopefully, we'd, first of all, be able to pay for our volunteers. Because a lot of time and effort goes into this. It's basically a part-time job. And we're not motivated by money. It's mostly just for the love of community and for the love of each other. So I think compensation would be really awesome. The second thing would be to reach a lot more Filipino-Canadian youth. There's Filipinos in all corners of Canada, but there's just been some areas where outreach has been a lot harder. And I'd also want to see what their lives are. For example, for folks that are living, you know, in the eastern coasts, for example. And then finally, I'd want Pinoy's on Parliament to last for as long as possible. You know, we've been doing this for six years and it's powered by community. We're hoping that it can continue to be sustainable so that we can continue to inspire each other. Hmm. For me, I definitely just want to see it grow more because going into this, I've barely heard about it. So when I heard it from Carla, I was like, this is actually like a really good thing for the community. So I was like, I think, I hope it could reach more Filipinos around Canada. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think just growth is what I look forward to with this. Growing and growing. Yes. You love to see it. Okay, yeah. well, I'm excited to see you guys on Friday. I'm excited to hear about yes. how these workshops go. Um, all the best. Thanks again for coming in today. Thank, Thank you, you so much. This was us. so lovely. That was my conversation with POP's chairperson, Carla Atanasio, and director of finance, Lisa Landicho. Lansdowne Park is a world-class historic attraction located in the Glebe neighborhood of Ottawa. Before any talks of Lansdowne 2.0 and major sports stadiums, the park grew on a foundation of rich history. CHUO's Marcella Gonzalez brings us more on this. Can you imagine that the modern park where people run, watch games, and attend events today was first used to host an agricultural fair? Lansdowne Park, located at the heart of Ottawa, is a green space with various buildings, plazas, and courts that have come to serve as a destination for sports and music fans. Its journey began in 1868, 
when the Ottawa Agricultural Society bought land in Bank Street, close to the Rideau Canal, to set up a fairground which would be known as Exhibition Grounds. Something interesting to point out is that people weren't really that happy with the location of the fair, since they thought it to be too far from everything else. And hey, at the time Ottawa didn't really extend past the equivalent of McLeod Street, so it makes sense that they complained. Even if later on residents of the Glyph would have the opposite problem with the ruckus of some festivals. Sadly, exhibition grounds were damaged by the Great Fire of 1870 that consumed the Ottawa Valley. But throughout the following years, they will come to see expansions and three provincial exhibitions, organized this time by the Agricultural and Arts Association of Ontario. The exhibition in 1877 came with the first public demonstration of the telephone in Canada. The native inventor Thomas Ahern had come up with a telephone system after reading about Bell's invention. His model included cigar boxes, magnets and wires that allow for a call between Pembroke and Ottawa. Just like him, many others would take the grounds to show off their discoveries. Finally, in 1890, the site changed its name to Lansdowne Park, making reference to the Marquis of Lansdowne, the previous Governor-General of Canada. After this, buildings like the Colosseum and the Aberdeen Pavilion were built. These last ones served as a hockey rink for a while, being witness to the Ottawa Senators' many wins, like the one against Winnipeg where they sent nine of their players to the hospital. It is in the Pavilion too where markets take place, like Steve Quantry Philly and Ottawa's Market, taking advantage of the high roof to create a spacious room. As for the Coliseum, it was demolished 10 years ago after a record of Ori accidents, including the two times its roof collapsed because of the snow and the time the boiler exploded. Other bits and pieces of history include the reposing of Lansdowne in World War II to enlist people in the army, the first panda game between Carlton and the University of Ottawa, even a world figure skating championship. And let's not even begin to talk about all the artists that have performed in the arena. The only thing I'll say is that next time you come to Lansdowne, think that the Rolling Stones and Led Zeppelin were there where you are not so many years ago. That was CHUO's Marcella Gonzalez. It's Freedom to Read Week at the Ottawa Public Library. This annual event highlights the diverse ideas and information learned through reading. The library invites folks to explore the role of public libraries in free expression. They'll be hosting discussions on access to information, challenges, censorship, and intellectual freedom. Tomorrow, author Lawrence Hill will discuss neglected aspects of Black history and the increasing opposition to the N-word in literature. The Ottawa Public Library has a series of videos from authors and journalists speaking about the significance of Freedom to Read Week. They touch on the significance of representing queer, Black, Indigenous, and disabled voices, among others. You can find this video series on the Ottawa Public Library website. And now James Brennan returns with an episode of Point of Skew. Today he's analyzing the role of post-media as a media conglomerate. Hello, and welcome back to Point of Skew. I'm James Brennan, and we'll be continuing our examination of the media industry through its very particular and unique functions. Whether that be private, public, state-affiliated media, we can start to understand why certain outlets cover the stories they do and why might they take certain sides, all of which serve to educate us on how to properly consume media and information in an age where the line between a truth and the truth seems to be further than ever. Last episode, we looked at the Montreal Gazette. Through the investigation of their sources of funding, we discovered that they are under a media conglomerate called Post Media. Today, we'll be going deeper into post-media and how a media conglomerate actually works. I personally think this isn't something that is often discussed in the industry. When Canadians typically hear conglomerate, we tend to think of Rogers or Bell and their skyrocketing prices, with little to no outside competition. 
By having such a tight hold on the flow of a market, they effectively make their own, where consumers have little choice but to buy their product. With the hindsight of the COVID-19 lockdowns, we're seeing conglomerates forming in the food and grocery industry. Here we saw corporations like Loblaws have a 30% boom to profits back in November of 2022, compared to the year before. It's painful to think back to 2022, but the uncertainty of the time is something to recognize. With less options during tough times, things can get worse for Canadians. Corporations of any kind that have a large market share can capitalize on these moments to grow even more. The same can be said for media. As when there's little choice and a general lack of trust, audiences will go to with what's available. What used to be available was print media, but we've seen a large shift to online news, where news outlets, big or small, have now fully moved to an online mindset. People feel uneasy when browsing these sites, and are more reliant on social media to learn about the world around them. Yet, there are dozens and hundreds of local papers that are a major part of each city but are usually ignored. The organization being looked at today, Post Media, has over 130 brands under their network, with 58 in Ontario alone. Now, these 130 plus brands are mainly these smaller, more local papers, such as the Ottawa Citizen, and go all the way up to large ones like the National Post. The sheer amount of outlets under their brand is astonishing. And with the majority of Canada's population being in Ontario, one can see the potential for their coverage. Now, evaluating a media group is much different compared to a lone outlet. But if we were to look at a wide variety of their brands, we can reach some conclusions about their involvement in the Canadian media landscape. During my research, one of the common points I came across is Post Media's connection to right-wing politics and it being exemplified in their wide array of outlets. Looking deeper, I found that back in August of 2019, it was reported by Canada's National Observer, a news outlet that analyzes the Canadian media ecosystem among other topics, that journalists at the National Post were told to, quote, be more conservative in their articles. The National Post is already recognized to be right-leaning, and telling one of the larger news outlets to be further skewed is something to be looked at. It also exemplifies how funding can influence content. When faced with the likes of something like this, there is always the question to be asked, what is the benefit? This rings true, and very much so in the idea of cash flow and funding. With Post Media having such a wide coverage, and now reports of influencing content, it really should strike a chord with anybody who consumes media. It is a symptom of private media, where the longevity of an outlet is not determined in their quality of reporting, but rather the number of subscriptions and traffic articles received. The National Post is one that I'm very familiar with, and I've heard of many times during my studies, but also growing up. However, the realization that it is a brand under a conglomerate, such as Post Media, is something that really should push the idea of reading and consuming news from a wide variety of outlets. Consuming news that aligns with your personal opinions, but also reading ones that may challenge them, is how you can gain the most complete understanding. The bipolarity of private media is a rather constructive thing, but when there is a heavy influence in how articles are written, it should make us all take a second look at what we read, no matter right or left leaning. To further the point, Post Media until October of 2016 was primarily Canadian owned, where now Chatham Asset Management, an American private equity firm who also owns American news outlets such as the Seattle Times and Miami Herald, now also have a 66% ownership of Post Media and the 130 Canadian newspapers under the brand. There is a lot of money in the news and media industry, and even foreign buyers have pull within the system. 
Following the money is always a good practice if you want to understand why certain points and topics are made or discussed in the private industry. Before and after the acquisition made by Chatham Asset Management, multiple articles put out by Canada's National Observer outlined the decline of Post Media's newspaper empire. This coincides with the later stage of the decline of the print industry. At least to my recollection, during the mid to late 2010s is when the shift to online news was most felt. This was also a time of much uncertainty for established media and was a wake-up call for these outlets to make a quick decision to go on social media or go online or be left behind. With hindsight being 2020, it can be said that the system as a whole is now faced with new issues not experienced during the age of print. But the offset is how much faster a story can be and the ability to have an interactive discussion about events on social media. Both these aspects are something that were not experienced with newspapers and was a more rigid structure of one-way information. It seems that post-media heavily invested in print media and was at its height when print was the main way of consuming media. However, this trend began to change. They were faced with tough times financially and were bought by a large American asset firm. An article by Canada's National Observer from October 2018 detailed the decline of post-media with lines such as, In June 2018, post-media, quote, has been closing newspapers and laying off staff at a relentless pace, end quote. Where that month alone, six small papers in Ontario and Alberta have been closed, three moved to online-only publishing, while reducing another to bi-weekly issues only. This is not evidence of a thriving company, nor a good time to be part of a print news outlet. And yet, this was more than six years ago. The landscape has changed, and what once was a print newspaper empire, and the preferred news medium for millions of people, has now subsided and changed. I personally find this shift interesting, as during my degree, the shift from print to online news is a regularly discussed topic. With dozens of authors speculating the impact and causes for this shift, and the aftershock of a news medium almost as old as humanity falling off. For centuries, newspapers and print were the preferred way of sharing information to the masses and keeping them informed. With that being the case, the methods of skewing a story were also much less robust than what we see today. Misinformation was a whole other beast during the prime of newspapers, and could be something to be looked at in a future episode. I am James Brennan, and this has been, and will continue to be, your call to check the point of skew. Thank you for listening. And that's it for this week's episode of The Mosaic. Thanks so much for tuning in. Music for The Mosaic is by Halizna. To listen to this episode and previous ones, go to chuo.fm slash podcasts. If you're interested in joining our news team, email news at chuo.fm. We'll see you next week, Thursday at 1 p.m. 